getting those munchies, giving your offering, or getting coffee, just uh, head our way. Everybody say, buckle up. It's going to be good. So we're going to do a study in the life of David, but before we get to David, um, I wanted to spend a couple of weeks putting background down as to what's going on and why David actually, God brought David under the scene and what's actually happening here. Um, what's happening in the nation of Israel, this is, how, this is how God's economy worked in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the, the, what God was doing there, he's mirroring back into through the church. And so God's intention with the children of Israel was to establish a kingdom. His desire was to bring them out of bondage and actually give them rulership and dominion and to make them the influencers on the earth. And so in order to do that, one of the of you were here last week, we show, I showed you like, there, there are three things. There's a progression. Jesus is prophet, right? Are we with me? He's priest. And what else is he? King. King. So it's not just a title. That's also a progression. One of the things is that when the Bible speaks of the gospel, it says this gospel will be proclaimed in all the world and then the end shall come. That's how we quote it. Unfortunately, that's a misquote because it doesn't say just gospel. It says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world and then the end shall come. So it's not just a generic gospel. And oftentimes the church gets hung up on this idea of the gospel of salvation. When the gospel is referenced or the good news or the power of God, it's not ever referenced as the gospel of salvation. Not once. Not once. It's always referenced as the gospel of the kingdom, the king's dominion, the king's rulership and reign. Salvation, being born again, forgiven of sins, is part of the king's dominion. It's part of the, king's, it's part of the kingdom of God. When you give your life to Christ, your spirit comes under the king's dominion. We confess Jesus as, starts with an L, Lord, you come under the lordship of Christ and you confess him as king. So you're spiritually aligned with the kingdom of God. So salvation in itself is part of the gospel of the kingdom. But salvation is not the entirety of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the king's dominion, in which it means the rule and reign of the dominion of God into every area of life, in every area of culture. That's within the life of the church, that's within the life of the individual, and through the life of the individual and the life of the church, that is to infiltrate the society itself. So there are people who are born again, let me just put it to you like this, they're born again, they've given their life to Christ, spiritually they're in the kingdom of God. But there are many areas of their life, and let's just get honest here, that are not in the dominion of God. That are not under the rulership and the reign of Jesus. And if you want to know what five key areas, everything for us, we try to deal with a handful of things so that you can understand it. Five key areas of your life are your, is your faith, your finances, your future, your family, and your friendships. Those would be five key areas. Those would be areas of your life that God would want rulership in. You understand that? He wants rulership of you in your relationships. He wants rulership of you with your faith. He wants your faith aligned with what he says, not what you think or what somebody else's opinion is. He wants rulership in the way that you run your family. And what it is is it's not a system of rules. It's a system of alignment. It's a system of agreement, bringing your life into subjection financially, with your future, with your faith, with your family, with your, with your friendships. That's what he's desiring. That's one of the foundations of kingdom power. When we begin to align our lives into this way, the power of God begins to move in our lives. One of the reasons the kingdom of God doesn't move into, into the family life is because the family's misaligned with the dominion and the rulership and the reign of God. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit or honor or respect or hold your husband in high esteem. Doesn't say she earns love. Doesn't say he's worthy of respect. It tells you to do it anyway. Love her whether she's lovable. Jesus loves you when you're not lovable. Honor him whether he's honorable or not. Honor him. It doesn't qualify it with, with, with whether they earn it or not. It tells us to do it. And so when we do that, all of a sudden something begins to happen within the marriage. There's a kingdom release. We teach our children. We lead our children into faith, into the Lord. All of a sudden there's a kingdom release. So you understand where I'm going with this? So we are, we are, to, we are the people of the kingdom. We're not of this world. We are of the dominion and the rulership and the reign of Christ. We're not like everybody else. And so the gospel of the kingdom begins with the individual. It's something also that comes under the rulership and the reign of the church. So we come into the individual life, and then we come into the rule and the reign of the church. What's the mission of the church? To make what? Starts with a D. Disciples. It's interesting. It doesn't tell us to make converts, although converts are important. It tells us to make disciples. So what is the kingdom of God's alignment with us making disciples? Well, we need to bring people into a minimum standard of discipleship. Read your Bible, pray, commit and connect to church, financially give and live on mission. That's the five basics of discipleship. So the church needs to create an ethos or a movement that brings people into alignment with that. So there's an individual responsibility and there's a corporate responsibility. That's how the kingdom of God comes. That's how power is manifested. God does not manifest power without kingdom alignment. Crickets. God does not manifest power without kingdom alignment. You want power in your future? You have to align it with the gospel of the kingdom. What does Jesus say? Now, you, you, most people believe that their future is hopeless. Most people believe that their past failures disqualify them for any kind of hopeful future. Who told you that? That's a lie. You want a future, you have to believe that God has a hope and a future for you. You mean to begin to align your heart and begin to live towards it, and all of a sudden, kingdom power begins to move in that. So long as your mentality and your mindset is misaligned with the kingdom of God, you will not manifest power, period. Period. It's wishful thinking. You can quote all the promises you want, but if your mentality is wrong, right, it doesn't matter. You have to align your heart with it. You have to begin to believe and know. It's like the love of God. If you don't believe and know that you're loved of God, there's no manifestation. If you view God as a harsh taskmaster, you're going to have a hard time relating to him. You're going to have a hard time with intimacy. You're going to have a hard time feeling welcomed in his church if you believe you, have to, if you, believe you earn it. It's about kingdom alignment. God's intention is always to establish the kingdom. His intention to this day through the church is to establish dominion, rulership, and reign. God does not want his people in bondage. For freedom's sake, Christ makes you free. Freedom comes through the dominion and the rulership of God. Am I with you? Am I losing you? No? Yeah? Okay. I'm, I'm losing somebody? Yes? No? <laughs> losing you? Yeah, you're losing me, Kevin. So God, through his people in Israel, he's looking to establish the dominion. The Lord was not satisfied with bringing them out of Egypt. The Lord was not satisfied with just simply forgiving them and restoring them or bringing them into promise. He not only wanted to forgive them, restore them, bring them into a promise, but he wanted to make them the influencers on the earth. He wanted to make them the light of the world. Anybody know that verse? Okay. Well, what does that mean? It means you're the influencer on the earth. He wanted to make them cities on a hill. Which means you're the place that people look to. You're the place where cities are culture makers and difference makers. So city on a hill isn't a fortress. City on a hill is an influence generator into the culture. We don't hide the light under a basket. We become influence generators. We become the creatives. We become all of these things. That's what we're designed to be. Somehow there's a disconnect. God, this is God's intention. I'm not saying we're aligned with it. This is a misunderstanding of what God wants. 
We have to understand what the Father wants. You cannot give the Lord what He wants until you understand what He actually wants. Am I, are you with me? We keep trying to give Jesus something He's not asking for. And we wonder why it's not happening, because He's like, I'm not asking for that. So A, I'm not paying for it, and B, I'm not leaving a tip. Okay? If you order pancakes and I bring you an omelet, I'm, are you going to pay for it? And then he go, can you give me pancakes? Yeah, sure. And I go back into the kitchen. Instead of getting, bringing you now, I don't bring you an omelet. Now I bring you like, you know, I don't know, a steak. You're like, I didn't order that either. Yeah, but you need to pay for it. I brought it to the table. Too bad, dude. I'm not paying for it, and I'm not tipping you. You don't know what you're doing. If you give Jesus what he wants, he pays for it and gives you a tip. So what we're doing is we're offering him to something that he doesn't, he's not requesting. So we have to learn what does he want and begin to give to the Lord what is he wants, not what we think or we feel or we, you know, not our ideas, what he wants. And he wants kingdom. He wants the church to be culture makers. He wants the church to be the influencers and the difference makers in every sphere of life. We should have the answers. And all of those, with the future, the church should have the answer. We don't need Deepak Chopra to give us the answer. We don't need Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Phil to teach us how to do relationships. The believer should be masters of relationships. We should be masters of relationships. But the problem is, is we don't deal with our own brokenness and we don't deal with our own issues. So therefore, we have no ability to deal with the issues of others because we haven't dealt with our own. We can't give what we haven't received. We should be masters. We are the leaders, the influencers in culture. And when a Christian speaks, the world should move. If they ever interview a Christian and then what comes out of the believer's mouth, the unbeliever should be blown back by what comes out of their mouth because we speak as men and women from another world. Our tongues are the pen of a ready writer. We speak but by the oracles of God so that when we speak, the room moves. That's who we are. That's what we should be. But unfortunately, that's not where we are. We are heirs, sons and daughters, heirs in this world and the one to come. Not just the afterlife, this life. Galatians, one of my favorite scriptures, it's been a meditation of mine for a long time, it says, I say to you, that's all of us, that the heir, so long as they are a child, are no different than slaves, though they are masters of all. The heir, that would be you, put your hand on your heart, say, I'm an heir, but I am no different than a slave, so long as I am a child and immature. That's right. The heir, God has bestowed upon you heir, authority, kingship, dominion, rulership. But you are enslaved and you are a bondage and you are no different than a slave because you don't understand. We're primitive. We're primitive. We think we're sophisticated and that a church couldn't be more primitive. We're so primitive in the way that we think. We're locked in doctrines from the 1800s. You know, we create our own doctrines because we think this is the way, well, we just make it up. Well, where's that in text? Well, we don't know, but we're just saying it. We believe God does. There's no power in the church anymore. Well, who told you that? Just because you don't see it doesn't mean there's no power in the church. Just because it's not your reality doesn't mean it's not truth. But we create these things. And what we're doing is we're giving God something he didn't order. And we're in bondage because we're no different than slaves because we're immature in our understanding of ourselves and we're immature in our understanding of who he is. It's true. That's why. How many know Jesus wants you, how many believes this? Jesus wants you to have your inheritance more than you do. Did you know that? Amen. Okay, I got four of you. That's a pretty good start. You're right. Say this with me. Jesus wants me to have experience and spend my inheritance more than I do. 
That's right. He wants you to have it more than you. But he's not going to work any harder than you. But he wants you to have it. Fear not, little ones. It's, a, it's your father's heart to give you the kingdom. The kingdom! I mean, could that be any more direct? He wants to give you everything. And he wants you to not only know what your inheritance is, he wants you to draw from it, and he wants you to spend it. And we say, what if I spend it all? You know why? Say this with me. There's always... Come on. There's always... More. <laughs> we limit God. We come from a world of deficiency. He is the all-sufficient one. So you spend everything he gave you, and you know what? He's got more for you. And when you spend everything he gave you, what you've really done is you've increased your capacity to receive more. He'll double down on you. He doubled down on the man with the talents that used it for his purposes. He doubled down. All right? But burying it in the ground, all that nonsense, he has no time for that. He wants you to have your inheritance, spend your inheritance, release your inheritance, and he wants it more than you do. But he will not work harder than you. Kingdom is established through partnership. It's also, he, so Jesus is wanting to establish the priesthood. He's wanting to establish kingdom with his people. He wants them to be the rulers, the head and not the tail. Anybody heard that? I, I think sometimes when I think about this, because I think Jesus would say to us, Kevin, I really mean that. I really mean I want you to be the head and not the tail. I mean, I really mean it. Do you believe it? Oh, yes. Oh, we pacify God. Oh, yes. Of course, Lord. Oh, yes, we believe it. We, we don't live like it. We don't act like it. We don't live towards that. But that's exactly what he said. He really means it. Head and not the tail, above only, not beneath. Are you with me? Blessed and are coming in, blessed and are going out. Inheritances, blessed so that we can establish his kingdom. Not blessed so that you can establish your name. Not blessed so you can be more popular than you were in high school. Not blessed because so you can be a show off and think I'm better than you. We are blessed to establish the kingdom, period. And God wants to establish dominion through his people, and this is required. He has to do this. This is a requirement. And you see him do it over and over and over and over again. He does the same thing when he's trying to establish kingdom. He'll cleanse the priesthood, establish the prophetic in order to release the kingdom. If there is not a cleansing of the priesthood or an understanding of the priesthood, if there is not an establishment and an honor of the prophetic, there will be no kingdom, period. And you can write that down. So if we want kingdom authority, we want kingdom power, we have to understand these two other aspects of ministry. Priestly ministry simply looks like this. It's worship and intimacy. That's what it is. Lord, all that I am for all that you are. It's an attitude and atmosphere of worship. That's why we sing in the morning. Do you know that? We sing in the morning to activate the priestly ministry. And it would be amazing if you would actually tune into it. If you would actually step into the priestly ministry, how all of a sudden the prophetic would start following right on top of it. Right on top of it. You'd be getting downloads of wisdom. God would be showing you things. You'd get understanding in things. You'd be like, whoa, wait a minute. I feel like really smart today. I need to write this down. But some of you, you come in here and you never activate what's actually in the room. You don't step into what's in the room. You begin to worship an intimate God. Your, 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 your concern is so much for your problems. What if you cast your cares upon him and just worship and gave him adoration and just began to minister from me to you and then let him minister back from, you to him, from him to you and then all of a sudden as you're ministering back, then we begin to bless each other. That's where the word koinonia comes in, right? From us to him, from him to us, from us to each other. And all of a sudden it's like just this love fest going on everywhere. Everybody's blessing and loving and honoring one another. You with me? And then as you're worshiping in an adoration, God will begin to give you insights and understanding. And I used to carry a pen. You guys heard me say this before. I'd have a pen and a piece of paper in my back pocket when I would worship. And I would come to church expecting. 
And I would enter into worship, and boom, I would tune into the atmosphere, and the Lord would begin to instruct me on everything that I'd been asking Him for. Our problem is, is we don't ask Him for anything, so we get zero. If you ask Him for nothing, you're getting nothing. If you're asking Him but believing Him for something, and you come into an atmosphere of worship and begin priestly ministry, all of a sudden He'll begin to download prophetic insights and understandings. And you should be whipping out your pen and writing it down. Call this person. Do this tomorrow. Make you, whatever He's telling you. Say, I'm sorry to my wife. You know, I mean, what, I don't know what it is. Apologize to my kids. I, I don't know. Whatever, whatever he's telling you. And then when you begin to obey the prophetic word, guess what happens? Dominion, the rulership and reign of Jesus begins to manifest. That's just what happens. But if we don't, have under, we don't have pure priestly ministry and we don't honor the prophetic, we will never see kingdom. All we're going to do is wishful thinking. And that's why Christians are constantly trying to believe God for the promises of God and saying all these things, but we're completely out of order. And the machine that God has made, he has made a system. We say, well, God's ways are hard to understand. Who told you that? Who told you that God is hard to understand? Can anybody give me a verse? God works in mysterious ways. We're not in the Bible. Jesus, is, Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us he can be known. He can be known. His ways can be known, and his heart can be known. Jesus came to manifest himself, and in his showing us to himself to us, shows us that God can be known. So all this nonsense is, we don't know the Lord. We don't be, that, that's like, that is a lame excuse and without acceptance. We are sons and daughters. We should know our Father, and we should labor to understand him. It's nonsense. God works in mysterious ways. Who told you that? You can know him. You can, his ways are known. And when we know his ways and we follow his ways, his blessing follows. His glory follows. His manifested power comes. It doesn't come overnight. This is, again, our, Christ, our American culture. We want it now. Ding, ding, ding. We think Jesus is a bellhop. As soon as we hit it, he stands at his attention and goes, yes, how can I serve you today? It doesn't work like that. We activate the promises and follow the path of God consistently, and the glory follows. That's how it works. Over time, it builds and builds and builds into momentum. That's how it works. Establish the priest, cleanse the priesthood, establish the, the honor of the prophetic, and then bring the kingdom. That's exactly what he's doing in David's life. First thing he does is he cleanses the house of Eli. Eli was not a worshiper in any form. Eli couldn't recognize the Holy Spirit if it hit him in the head. If the Holy Spirit came down and just punched Eli in the face, he wouldn't recognize him as the Holy Spirit. He goes into the temple. He sees this woman, Hannah, praying. She's weeping and honestly in heart before the Lord, and he says she's drunk. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Because he was so foreign to the atmosphere of the Spirit, he perceived that as a natural occurrence when it was supernatural. Undiscerning. Dull. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Are you still dull? Are you guys so dull? You've walked with me for how many years, Christian? I've been a Christian for 30 years. Are you still dull? Are you still dull? Just a thought. And you should go to the mirror and go, tch, tch, I'm going to be dull no more. You will not be dull anymore. You will not silence the voice of the Spirit, and you will not dull your heart to the commands of God. That will revolutionize you in a minute. If you set your heart on that. We get Christians and we boast about how many years we've walked with the Lord. Really? Really? What has your life produced? What has your life produced? In your 30 years, in your 40 years, in your 20 years, in your 10 years, what has your life produced? And if you cannot point to something significant and powerful, I would tell you your walk is misaligned. I didn't say you're not loved. I didn't say you weren't, you weren't inherited. I didn't say you weren't a daughter or a son or whatever. I didn't say any of that. But I would say your, your walk is misaligned. 
We're called to bear fruit, right? Much fruit. So don't give me, I've been walking with Jesus 10 years as if you've arrived. We take a believer that's walked with him for six, years, six months and he's producing, or he or she's producing fruit, and they surpass the believer that's been there for 10 years and is nothing more than a religious whatever, useless, salt without flavor, <laughs> light but under a bushel. He cleanses the priesthood. Eli couldn't, he was dull to the Holy Spirit and his sons were unfaithful and he was unresponsive to them. He should have removed them and he didn't. His sons die in battle. This is last week. So Eli's sons go out, the sons of the priesthood go out. They die in battle. Eli hears about it, falls down, dad breaks his neck. He dies. God cleanses the priesthood. Priesthood moved from the house of Eli to another of Aaron's sons, the house of Zadok, and Zadok would carry it through. Samuel, this is how he establishes the prophetic. He cleanses the priest and he brings a boy into the situation. He brings a child that he can train. He couldn't train any of the religious, so he had to find somebody new. And God trains Samuel in the prophetic. Cleanses the priesthood, establishes the prophetic. And Samuel began to lead the people. As Samuel began to lead the people, he was a seer, he was prophetic. As he began to lead the people, he assigned his sons to be judges. That's what they were. People wouldn't go to courts in the Hebrew time. They would come before the judge or before the prophet. You see kind of the same thing in the New Testament. Why do you go to court with one another? Can't you find the wise and discerning people among the house? The last thing Christians are to do is to go to court with one another. I mean, oftentimes that's the first thing we do. That's the last thing we do. And what it is is it's a lack of submission. Sometimes the courts are necessary, but they're not first resort. They're last resort. I get it. Sometimes that's needed. We have to because we can't, you know, people that we don't want to align and we don't want to submit or we don't want to whatever. So we have to go to court, but that shouldn't be the first place we go. And so these were, they would judge the people. But the problem with these sons is they were corrupt. They would take bribes. They would pervert justice. They would accuse people who were, not, who were not, not to be accused. They would release people who were supposed not to be released. They were perverting justice. And so the people come before Samuel, and they say, well, you know, Samuel, you're old, okay? Both of these excuses are very lame. They say, Samuel, you're old, and your sons, you know, they're just kind of not with the program. So we want a king. So the fact that Samuel was old, that really wasn't the issue. This is what we call, this is what we do as Christians. We like to mask everything with religion. We mask everything with spirit, you know. <laughs> I, I know people haven't walked with the Lord in 10 years, and then they show up and go, the Lord told me this. I'm like, really? He told you that? You know, it's like we mask it because it's a decision that they don't want to make, so then they make up some excuse that the Lord told me. Well, maybe the Lord told you. But you haven't, you haven't done anything in 10 years, now all of a sudden you know this is what you're supposed to do, but you feel that the Lord has told you different. So the people are couching everything with sort of this religious pretense. Well, you're old man, Samuel. We need some skinny jeans and some smoke machines around here because you're old. We don't need a worship leader that's over the age of 30. And you got a little bit of gray hair. We don't need that. We need to reflect the culture more. This is what's going on. You're too old. You're irrelevant. Well, who told you that? Again, you're going to see Jesus never told him that. And then they say, your sons don't want to walk with the Lord. Well, again, that's a lame excuse. That may have been a fact, but that wasn't the excuse. The real reason is, say it with me, they wanted to be like everyone else. Here's the problem. We're not like everybody else. Next slide. That's the problem. They weren't to be like everyone else, and we weren't to be like everyone else. So the first problem is, is you're too old. Okay? There's all kinds of verses in the Bible that, that address this. This is normal to the human condition. This is a big movement within the church today. I don't know if you guys have seen the youth movement. I'm all for it. 
I'm all for relevance. I'm all for bring it forward. But relevance has nothing to do with age. You can be 60 years old up here with skinny jeans and smoke machines and deliver the word of God with power and experience, and it makes no difference. For me personally, I don't I receive from anybody, but it's a very difficult time when we have people advising on life experience when they don't have any. God uses elders, okay? The people that were to assume positions within the church or within his people were the older people. They were old. The old man was the one who spoke last. The youngest person in the room, when there was a council, the youngest person in the room was not allowed to talk at all. Sit in silence in the seat of the learner while the older advise. And the oldest one, his words were considered the, way, the weightiest. He was the one that was permitted to speak last because his words were the ones that were considered worse. So how do you equate that with our, with our culture? It's completely upside down. And what we're doing is that I feel like it's, 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 it's something that's not of God. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to push the most experienced saints out to pasture. You're trying to push the, I feel the glory on me. They're trying to remove the leadership, the eldership, the maturity from the church. We were a very young church when we first started out. We had a bunch of 20-somethings. I'd get people to come here. They'd be like over the edge of 40 and be like, hey, man, I don't know if this place is for me. I go, no, dude, I seriously, we need you, okay? Because I got a bunch of 20-somethings that don't know. They need the experience. They need the life experience. They need the coaching. They need that. It's, it's part. We should be young and old. We should cross all spectrums. But the, the culture of the church thinks that we got to be like everybody else. Hey, look, man, we can turn this place into a disco. I'm all for it. I'm still going to bring the word. You know what I mean? That, that's not the relevance. But see, these people are telling him, you're too old. You're too old. If you read this story, Samuel retires. He goes up and he retires. After he appoints a king, he retires. He says, hey, guys, I'm done. I'm out. I've served my purpose. Only problem with that, Jesus never told him to retire. It's the only problem. And what Samuel actually does is he ministers another 20 years. So he gives a statement after Saul becomes king. He stands up and gives a statement. I've served you. I've been with you all these years. Da, 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 da. You know, I'm going off to pasture and going to go, you know, do a shell collection or play golf for the rest of my life. The problem with that is that the Lord never released him. There's not even any retirement in the scripture. You don't find it. What you find is refire. You don't find retire. It's true. And so Samuel retires and says, I'm done. And the Lord goes, uh, I didn't say you were done. Who told you you were done? And read the story from uh, Samuel, I think it's 13, all the way into like 24. He continues to minister, not just through the ministry of Saul. He continues into the life of David. He didn't retire then. God never told him to retire. American life expectancy is 79 years. Do you know that? And it's trending more towards 85. So you say, oh, man, I'm 50 years old. You know, well, you got... 30 more years of game time, Christian. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? You know, I'm, so I'm 40 years old. Well, you got another 40 years of game time. What are you going to do with it? The, the, the era of we're dead at 65, that, that's long gone. Life expectancy in the United States is trending into the 80s. That's, it's trending. It, goes, it waffles a little bit because of drug abuse has been the main thing. But as far as health, we eat better than we ever ate. Our life expectancies are higher than they've ever been. I'm not saying everybody does it right, but this is the trend. If you look at 1970, I think the average life expectancy was like 66. So in the last 40 years, it's gone up almost 20 years. And you're going to see that it's going to continue to trend higher. So what you have to do is you have to evaluate your life. You know, what we do is we say, well, you're 65, you need to go out to pasture, go get yourself a rocking chair and sit and wait till Jesus comes. Who told you that? 
You're about to enter into the most valuable time of your life. The Bible even says, say to my people, I am old and my time is past. Speak to that group, God says. Who told you that? Who told you? You are without children, most of you, that reached that point. Your 40s, your 50s, and 60s, your kids are grown. And you're like, well, I don't know who I am. You're, you're a son and daughter of God. Your whole life is in front of you. The most glorious chapter of your life can be written. And if you follow the text, God uses people, men and women, greater in their latter stages than he ever did when they were younger. That's right. Somebody needs a clap for that. Who told you it's over? Who told you that it's over? It's true. Who told you that? Jesus doesn't tell you that. So it's not over. It wasn't over for Samuel. He doesn't give you permission to retire. God wants that life experience. God wants those things. He wants something out of you. You have to shift your life from where you are to what God wants. That's what, what does he want? What can I accomplish in this season of my life? We don't, listen, we don't go to bed. We're, just, we're supposed to run across the finish line. That's how we finish as Christians. We don't just lay there and wait for Jesus to come into the hospital room and walk me out the door. No, we're supposed to, we're supposed to run through the finish line. Dropping dead at the end of a sermon. What, how glorious would that be? He ran the race. He finished the work. Right? Whatever it is you're doing, you're serving Jesus. Oh, well, you know, there it is. You know, that's it. I mean, that's, that's way more than greater. So I want to I encourage you this morning to not devalue yourself and to not see you. And I get people that are in their 30s and they think their life is over. This is our culture. Right? It's true. Right? The way the modern culture is for young people is that if you're not a millionaire by 30, you failed. And that's why suicide in the, in the 30-somethings, is, is that's one of the highest percentages among suicides is in the 30s because young people feel like they failed. Well, I haven't made a million dollars and I'm only 32 years old. You know? Well, who told you that? <laughs> I mean, this is the culture that we live in. We, they, we're letting them define success. Success is over the long term. God will build it, but he builds it in time. I told first service, he didn't build the earth in a day, did he? Let's ask the question, could he have built the earth in a day? He could have not only built it in a day, he could have built it outside of time. So Jesus could have built everything because he created time and space. Time and space is a created realm. He lives in eternity. He creates the realm of the, of the, of the, etern of the temporal. He creates time and space. So he lives outside of it. So he's, there's, that's the realm. He could have created it in eternity and just brought it in to the, to the temporal. He didn't even need time, but he did. He didn't do it that way. He did it to teach us. This is how I do it, Kevin. I lay foundations and I build everything on top of itself. Everything on top of itself. So people go, I'm 30 years old and I'm behind. Well, you're down in the first quarter. What are you crying about? I'm 45. I'm not where I want to be. Well, you're down in the half. You're down at halftime. What are you crying about? The game's still on. Oh, I'm down, and I'm 60, or I'm whatever, 55, 50, 60 years old, and I'm not where I want to be. Well, you're down in the fourth quarter. So what? The games aren't. I had somebody ask, tell me in the, after first service, he goes, yeah, but not everybody wins in the fourth quarter. I said, yeah, but I'd rather be taking shots in the fourth quarter than sitting on the bench. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, well, Kevin, you got to realize not everybody wins in the fourth quarter. Okay, well, if we're believers, even if we lose, we win. So there's no way we're not going to win. <laughs> And I'm going down shooting the basketball. I'm not going down sitting on the bench. I don't know about you, but that's God's heart. So be encouraged. They wanted to be like everybody else. Problem was, we're not like everybody else. Jesus says we're in the world, but we're not of it. Then he says this. This is a very powerful statement of our identity. It needs to be understood. 
He says, you're chosen. Put your hand on your heart. Say, I'm chosen. Come on. You're not a chosen generation. You are chosen in your generation. You are uniquely created for this time in history. Did you ever think about that? You were created. Bible tells us that God defined the times and the seasons in which men were to live. That's Acts. God has defined your time and your season as now. You are chosen in your generation. That word chosen is the Greek word genos. What's that sound like? It's genetic. It's where we get the word genetic. It's from the word genos. You are a chosen, a genos in your generation. You're in a DNA that is unlike all the other DNA around you. That's why it tells us that when we come to Christ, all things become new. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That verse literally means you become someone and something that never existed before. Truly born again. You're of a, you're of a spiritual DNA and a spiritual makeup that doesn't exist. And our problem is, is that we don't tap into that. We live on a carnal world. We live on a carnal realm. We have a choice as believers to live in the carnal or to live in the supernatural. That's our choice. Nobody else gets to walk in the spirit except the believer. The unbeliever doesn't get to walk in the spirit, but you do. The unbeliever doesn't even have access to the spirit of God, but you do, the realms of God. And we can also live carnally. The Bible uses that, carnal Christians, very consistently. Are you not carnal? Are you not carnal? Are you not carnal? Right? So we can live carnally. We can think like the world. We can act like the world. We can live like the world. That's what it means to be in the world, not of it. It's the Greek word cosmos. World means cosmos, and what cosmos means is system of thinking. So when Jesus is telling us that we're in the world, but we're not of it, what he's telling us is you're in a world of a system of thinking, but you are not of that world that has a system of thinking. You understand that? It's true. He's not talking about a physical place. This is where Christians create the Ziploc bag mentality. We retreat from culture, zip ourselves up into some isolated things, and proclaim that we're in the world, but not of it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're in a system of thinking, but you are not of that system of thinking. The way that you perceive money, the way that you perceive sex, the way that you perceive future, the way that you perceive faith is to be different. Crickets. Our problem is, is that we are in the world and we are of it. And the Christian walks in a carnal mind, with a carnal mindset, in agreement and alignment with a culture, when we're supposed to be in agreement and alignment with a kingdom. That's our problem. We have to think and understand from his heart to this world. From his, that's why it's called the mind of Christ. Did you guys ever think about that? We have the mind of Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means you can access the thinking of God in the spirit. You can go into the mind of Christ, literally. We are connected to his world, and we can see from his world. And we can understand in his, what's called revelation. We have that ability, a supernatural ability given to us, a power that's been given to us. We're chosen. We're a genos in this generation. Nobody's like you, Christian. Why do you settle for so little? When you are made exceptional, why do you settle for so little? Why do you settle for common when you are uncommon? Why do you settle for average when you're created to soar and you're created to be above average, above only and not beneath? You say, it's a struggle, Kevin. Yeah, it's a struggle, but you win. You win. Only thing that disqualifies the believer is if they quit. I don't believe that. Be not weary in your well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you don't quit. That is a guarantee of success as long as you don't quit. As you're guaranteed. It's a covenant promise over the believer. You may not get there this year, you may not get there next year, but you're going to get there. It's an inevitability. I will succeed. It is inevitable. My children will be taught of the Lord if you will follow his path. It is inevitable. It will happen. You're of royalty. Put your hand on your heart. Say, I am royal. 
I am supernaturally royal. That means, come on, that means I have authority, responsibility, position, power, and inheritance. You may not have a clue what that means, but that's truth. You may not have the slightest idea what that means. You may not have the slightest idea of how to even walk in that, but it doesn't matter. That's what's true over your life. And the key is how do you learn to walk in that? What does that mean? This is who I am. You're not going to be. You are. God calls you what you are before you get there. You are royal right now. You are a son or a daughter right now. You're not going to be. You are a son and daughter right now. It's true. And we begin to live towards our identity and we begin to manifest our identity. It's one of the things that God, God showed Moses. This was key. God sends Moses down to, is, to Egypt. Moses made every excuse in the book. You guys know the story? Oh, Lord, I can't speak. Oh, Lord, this. Oh, Lord, that. He had every excuse in the book. And the Lord confronted him on his identity. And the Lord said to him, he goes a little further, but I'll just close it with this. I'll, show, I'll, I'll just take it this far. The Lord says to Moses, see, I have made you. Until Moses saw how God had made him and for who he was and what he was, Moses couldn't do anything. He said, I see I have made you. Stop coming up with excuses and start seeing how God has made you. Royal. Different. This is what he is. You were a priesthood. We minister from, come on. We minister from his world to this one. This is who we are. We're chosen. We're royal. We're priests. We minister. Without, we have to learn to minister. We have to learn to worship God. We have to learn to develop intimacy with Him. We have to learn. We have to learn to be vulnerable with Him. Holy, it means clean. That's what the word holy means. It means clean. But the word holy doesn't just mean clean. It means have access. Come boldly before the throne of God. Before the throne of grace. Literally. We spend a lot of, this is interesting, we spend a lot of time, and I'm not going to get into Christian semantics here, but we spend a lot of time bowing at an altar when we're supposed to come before a throne. We come before an altar of repentance when we're supposed to come before a throne of grace and spiritual empowerment. It's an upgrade in our thinking. It's a level up from our thinking. You can stay at the altar as you want to, but I choose to go before the throne and receive his empowerment. It's a supernatural upgrade. It's a way that you perceive it. Well, I think we should stay at the altar. Oh, come to the altar, just like the song says. Well, I, call, I choose to go before the throne, and I choose to receive grace, which is spiritual empowerment. That's me. It's, a super, it's an upgrade in our thinking. We're holy. We're clean. We have access. We're a nation. We're united. We can't do it alone. People that think they don't need church, you're crazy. You're crazy. Not gospel. Not in your Bible. Well, we're part of the universal church. I was just with a group of people, and that's what they were telling me. We're part of the universal church. I said, really? I said, how's that working out for you? The, the universal church is in the Bible, but it's collections of churches working with one another. It doesn't mean you are created and called by God to commit and connect to the church. If you do not commit and connect to a local body, there is a dysfunction in your discipleship, and you will not get past it until you commit and connect to a church, period. And you can write it down, and you can spend the next 10 years experimenting with what I just said, or you can agree with what I said and begin to commit and connect to a local church. You can go ahead. You won't be the first one to experiment with that, but you are going to waste a lot of time, a lot of time. My son was asking me this week about the difference between my upbringing and his, and I told him I didn't have parents around me that advised me like, like you were advised. And I that's what I told him. I didn't have it. I said, your mom and I had to figure it out, and I said, if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't even know where we were. But by the grace of God, he has brought us, and he has been our father, and he has done all of these great things. 
And so what I was just telling my son this week, if you will be wise and you will listen to your mother and father, I, we will save you years off of your life. Years. What took me 10, you'll do in two. If you'll listen. Because we've already made the mistakes. We've already done all the wrong things. All you got to do is listen. Not about controlling, just listen. That's it. That's kind of the way it is here. We, we need to not make this up and say, well, I don't need church. I don't need that. This is why there's such a fracture within the body of Christ. And you say, well, there aren't any good churches. Man, you got the choice, dude. You, you have Baskin Robbins in the United States. Seriously, you got 32 flavors. Pick one. You like chocolate chip? We got that for you. You know, you like, you like a little Neapolitan? We got that going on. It's, it's where are you challenged? Where are you called forward? Where are you receiving from? Where are you growing and where are you transforming? What challenges you? Say this with me. There is no challenge. There is no change. What we want in American Christianity, for the most part, is we want to be tickled. Tickle me. Pastor, tickle me. Tickle. Tickle, tickle. <laughs> or we don't want to be challenged. We don't want anything said to us that causes us to believe anything different than what we already believe. You know, we want to stay in our little comfort zone, and we want to be challenged. We don't want to understand that we have a responsibility to our faith, that there is a part of us that needs to be given. There's a part of us that needs to be surrendered. There are things that we need to get rid of and things that we need to realign. We don't want to hear that. We just want to, you know, sing, oh, happy day and leave, and, you know, that's just not it. We have to be challenged, so this is part of your transformation. Now, this part right here is you're a special people. That word special means endowed. Say it with me, endowed. That's, that's the meaning of the word. You are bestowed upon. You are endowed. And every time it's used in the Greek, it's used in, in relationship to these three words. You can do a word study on that word. It means endowed, and it's used always in relationship to glory. So what God says to you, you're special, which means I have endowed you with glory. This is why you're special. Why am I special? Why am I special? Because I've endowed you with glory. Well, what's glory? Substance, weight, and goodness. That's what glory means. All of us as believers, we are endowed with substance. There, there's power that resides with us. There's substance to our lives. There's favor on your life, and there is goodness over your life. You are endowed. That's why you're special. You're endowed with salvation. You're forgiven. You're free. You're released. And not only that, you're endowed with preservation. Say it with me. God will preserve me regardless of the situation. If I am faithless... Come on, if I am faithless, he remains faithful. He will not deny himself. He has endowed you and has made a covenant over you that he will preserve you in spite of you. Aren't you special? You will walk through what other people sink in. What destroys people will not destroy you. It's true. It's true. Absolutely true. Next slide. God gives them Saul. They wanted a king because they wanted to be like everybody else. And the Lord said, here you go. Saul was a tall, dark, handsome, and oiled specimen of manhood. <laughs> he was an Abercrombie model. He had a nine-pack. He actually had an extra ab. <laughs> Samuel anoints him, but he hid among the baggage. Say it with me. He hid among the baggage. So God is summoning him to a position but he can't come to the position because he's hiding among his baggage. How many of you have been summoned to a position, but you find your life constantly hiding among your baggage? You can't get past your baggage and assume your rightful position. Saul's hiding among the baggage. And the Bible is pointing to his position that Saul Samuel is calling him into an anointing, 
And then it also is referring to us that Saul will not take a step into it because he's too busy hiding among his baggage. If you're going to take your position in anointing, you're going to have to learn to deal with your baggage. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is uncomfortable and not a popular topic within the church. We like to pretend that everything's just fine, shiny, happy people. You know, we're just happy all the time. Everything's glorious. You have to deal with your baggage if you're going to take your anointed position. What was his? His was the opinions of others. Saul had a fear of what people thought of him. That was a huge trap for him. His opinion of himself was, and he honored himself, and he honored the opinions of others more than he honored the Lord. That was a problem. Saul lacked intimacy. You never see him in an act of worship. Somebody has to augment it for him. Even though he was given permission, God released prophetic to him. He gets anointed king, takes a step, boom, all of a sudden he starts prophesying. So God had released an intimacy with him, but Saul never walked in it. Saul always chose someone else to augment his worship for him. So he lacked intimacy with the Lord. He didn't know the Lord as deeply as he should have, and he didn't know himself as deeply as he should have. He lacked intimacy. He was jealous. Oh, how he was jealous. Say this with me. Jealousy blinds me to what I have. Jealousy blinds me to what I have been given. If I am jealous of another's gifts, I am blind to my own. If I am jealous of another's mandate, I am blind to my own. That's right. Jealousy blinds you to what you have. Jealousy blinds you. When you want something that someone else has, it's what it should be is a culture of celebration. God's done that, we should all celebrate. We should be celebrating because what God does for one, he'll do for another. Thank God you're walking in your mandate, man. That means mine's coming. Well, I don't know what my mandate is and I'm just really mad that you have a mandate. Well, you're lazy. Why don't you go to Jesus and find out what your mandate actually is? That's our problem. We don't actually, we, we don't want to do the work that's required for us to understand our mandate. What does the Lord want for me? What does the Lord have for me? What is my calling? What are my gifts? What, are, what is it that the Lord wants to produce through my life? And so what we end up doing is we spend our time being jealous of other people. And in doing so, we blind ourselves to what he wants and what he wants to do with us. Now was Saul's problem. He didn't realize God had given him the kingdom. So he spent his life being jealous of David when he was the one sitting on the throne. He was the one with the power and the influence, but he spent 15 years in jealousy and rage pursuing a guy that ultimately was no threat to him. The Lord would have let Saul live out his days and probably die quietly and then bring David on the throne had Saul not taken it to the levels that he had took it to. It's true. Impulsive. He was very impulsive. He made impulsive decisions. I'm going to do this. No, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Everything he did was an impulsive decision. That was wrong. He also was very arrogant. Nobody could tell him anything. Somebody tried to tell him, hey, Saul, I think you're a little off here. Oh, I'm the king. Shut up. Sit down. Be quiet. Everybody eats when I tell them to eat. That's what he would do. He ordered the army. Nobody eats until I tell them to eat. Well, his son didn't get the message, and his son ended up eating. And Saul is ultimately going to kill his own son because of his arrogance. He brings Jonathan in front of him, and he's going to kill Jonathan because Jonathan obeyed, disobeyed his stupid command. They were starving so much that when they finally won the battle and they were permitted to eat by old King Saul, that they began to eat the meat with the blood in it. Men began to just tear into the animals because they were starving because Saul and his arrogance and his pride and his self-will forbid them to eat and left them in the field so long that they were starving and emaciated. True. Arrogant and impulsive. None of it was the heart of God. The men, men had to step in and go, look, dude, you're not killing your son. Well, the king has made a decree. Well, shut up, dude. Your decree was wrong. It's not God's will. The guy just had a dip of honey. That's all he ate. 
Saul's transformed begins to prophesy. Here's Saul's problem. Saul could not follow another one of his problems is he couldn't follow a simple set of instructions. Could it be, Christian, that our position and our rulership and our leadership and everything that God wants to do in our life is directly related to our failure or our inability to follow a simple set of instructions? Simple set of instructions he couldn't follow. Go up to Gilgal and wait until I come. Simple set of instructions. Well, the people started getting nervous because there was a battle about to be fought the next day, so Saul decided he didn't want to do that anymore, and he took the power into his own hands. And and Samuel goes, what are you doing? I gave you a decree. The Lord spoke this to you. Why are you doing that? Then the Lord told him to destroy the Amalekites, and he didn't do that either. And after he fought the Amalekites, he put up a monument to himself as if he had achieved something. Literally. He does what God told him not to do. God told him to completely eradicate the Amalekites. The Amalekites are an image of demonic power. In the Old Testament, the demonic power was confronted in the flesh. In the New Testament, the battle has moved from the flesh to the spirit. The Amalekites were a group of wicked people that had blasphemy so deep in their culture that even their little ones practiced it. That's the difference between the Amalekites and Nineveh. God didn't destroy Nineveh because their children, there was still hope. Their children had not bowed their knee. With the Amalekites, they had all bowed their knee. And they were doing very wicked things, and they had their little kids doing it too. And that was the problem. And they were a culture against God. Everywhere they went, these Amalekites attacked God and did all this crazy stuff. And the Lord said, I've had it. I want want the scourge gone. And and, uh, Saul said, he didn't kill everyone. He didn't kill the king. King's name was Agag. Samuel walks up and goes, why didn't you kill Agag? Oh, oh, Samuel grabs a sword and just hacks the guy down. He said, did the Lord tell you to kill Agag? Then why didn't you kill Agag? Well, I thought. Well, I felt. Well, somebody else told me. That's the problem. He couldn't follow a simple set of instructions. If you flash forward, he didn't even kill Agag. And in the book of Esther, Haman is a direct descendant of Agag. Haman is an Agagite, which means his family line, Haman, the guy that tried to kill the Jews, was a direct descendant of Agag. And had Saul killed the Agagite and killed what God had told him, they wouldn't have had this problem in the book of Esther. But because they didn't, then the, the curse was prolonged, and the problem was prolonged. He, rejected, he was rejected as king, and so let's say this together. Dominion is established in partnership, obedience, courage, and risk. And because Saul would not operate in these things, the Lord could not establish dominion with him. And so he had to look to another direction. Saul had proven himself in very significant ways that he was going to follow his will or he was going to follow the people's will more than he was going to follow what the Lord said. So he basically had no honor for the Lord's counsel or the Lord's ways, and he found himself without a position anymore. Next slide. Didn't mean he wasn't loved. Saul sets up a monument to himself. So God goes and chooses David. He pivots from Saul and says, go to the house of Jesse. I've chosen one of the sons of the house of Jesse. And so... Samuel has a problem with it because Samuel was really into Saul. He really liked Saul. Saul was good looking. Saul had really steely biceps, you know. Saul was like good looking. His hair blew a certain way in the wind when it went, you know. His perfume, his cologne, his oiled scent was just like like the Rose of Sharon he smelled like, you know. Lily of the Valley, wow, he just is amazing. But so, but the Lord sends him to David's house. He sends him to Bethlehem. And so it right down in verse 6. Samuel goes to this house. He goes to the house of Jesse. He looks at the really tall, good-looking one, and he says, this is the one that needs to be chosen. And the Lord goes, wrong answer. Say this. The Lord does not look at the outside. The Lord 
looks at the heart. Okay, we're a, we're a vanity culture. We're all about vanity. Looking good, feeling good, all the way around. Okay, vanity is not a sin unless it subverts character. If vanity becomes the substance of your character, then vanity is wrong. You understand? Yes. Vanity, God doesn't mind his people being beautiful. He doesn't mind them being good looking. He doesn't mind you wearing nice clothes. He doesn't mind you with, with things that, that make you feel good. As long as that is not above your character, or as long as that is not above your honor. It's the same thing where God tells, well, your outward adornment shouldn't be with braided hair and jewelry. So we create a doctrine that says women shouldn't wear braided hair and women shouldn't wear jewelry. That's not what he was saying. In Corinthians, he's saying, let not your outward adornment merely be, let not your adornment merely be with these things, but let it be with a heart that's for the Lord, a quiet and subjected heart towards the Lord. So what he was addressing was the vanity that had taken place over the heart. And Paul never said, get rid of these braids, okay? Get rid of this gold. I don't want women with any jewelry, no makeup, no hair, but that's, we got churches that do this. No jewelry, no hair. Have your hair down. You got to, you know, be able to sit on it like wagon train. You know what I'm saying? No, it's true. You know, no jewelry, no makeup at all, at all. The word jewelry literally means praise. Did you know that? It means a lyrical praise, jewelry, lyrical praise. So ladies, when you're putting on, when you're putting on your, your jewelry, you're going, I'm giving a lyrical praise. Because that's what it means. That's what the word means, a lyrical praise. Lyrical praise. But we decide that's not the way. But what he's trying to address is he's trying to address a heart issue. He's trying to say, look, don't, don't elevate this stuff above your heart. Let your heart be pure. Seek first what is his and what is right. Next slide. I'm giving you guys a lot of information, I know. So, you know, it's like steak and potatoes. Here, have some more. Here, have another plate. Oh, my gosh, Kevin, when are you going to stop? All right, I'm almost there. Last slide. Jesse had seven sons. They all walk in front of Samuel, the glorious line of the house of Jesse. And Samuel looks them all over, and he goes, uh, he's not here. <laughs> he's like, is there another son? And Jesse goes, the literal response is, oh, yeah, there's David. That's his literal response. Oh, yeah, there's David. So who is David? Forgotten by his father, clearly. Okay? The prophet told him, bring all your sons. Eh, David don't matter. Forgotten by his father, unesteemed by his brothers. You'll see that as the passage is to come. None of his brothers cared about him, thought he was belittled. But he was seen by God. So you can be forgotten by your father. You can have no respect among your peers, but the Lord will see you. Your yes, come on. Your inheritance comes from him. Comes from him. It's true. So David, didn't, David didn't, wasn't remembered. He's off in the field. He's in the backside of the camp, the backside of the property, taking care of sheep. My question is, why are there seven brothers in the house and only one is on the field? All these other dudes are sitting there eating Cheetos and playing Xbox. You know what I mean? And he's, and he's, he's the only one that's out there doing anything. And you never see him complain. He does it with a heart. He does it faithfully, truthfully to the Lord. The, the rule is, or the, the story goes, is what theologians believe is that his mother died in childbirth with David. And so his father, this is a theological perspective. I'm not saying it's in the Bible, but this is the, this is the theological reasoning. Because the mother's never mentioned in the story, and the father has some sort of resentment or disdain towards David, which he clearly does. And because you cost me my wife, my wife died in childbirth, you're, you know... You're this to me. I don't want anything to do with you. But see, even though God saw that, God, God honored David. What God saw while David was in the outback, right? You know what he saw? He saw a heart, he saw courage, and he saw hunger. 
If you study David in the wilderness, when he was out there tending his father's sheep, he had a heart for God. He actually proclaimed God as his father. And he, he writes a verse that goes something like this. Though my father and my mother resent me, yet I am esteemed by you. So you don't think he knew his father resented him? He knew his father resented him, but he pivoted away from the relationship with his earthly father and drew his identity from his heavenly father. And the Lord goes, that's my boy. And he had a courage. He had a courage and a passion for the things of the Lord. Huh? Oh, my heart is pure before God. Do you have a courage and a passion and a hunger? David wanted what God had. He was hungry for it. You see him when he goes to Goliath. You can see the same thing. He didn't hesitate. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that blasphemes God? Question one. And question two is, what are you all doing sitting around? Didn't anybody see what's going on here? And David said, if it costs me my life, I will honor the Lord. If everybody else is a coward, I will not be. And if someone has to die for the Lord's honor, let it be me. But I will not sit here passively by while the Lord's name is mocked and while the Lord's name is blasphemed. And the Lord goes, my king, <laughs> my boy, one who will hold the weight of power because he knows how to honor me. You got to get your honor right, Christian. You begin to honor him above all things, above your will, above everybody else's will. I'm going to honor the Lord. It's not an issue of rules. It's an issue of heart. It's an issue of passion. David was 16 when he became anointed. 16. Somebody goes, I received a prophetic word 12 years ago. Well, David had to wait almost 15 years for this to come to pass. And in the journey, God developed him. He developed David, cut things away from his life, put, allowed pressure to come upon him in order to reveal a person who could hold the weight that was going to be put upon him. God may have released a prophetic word to you long ago, and it hasn't come to pass. And you've had nothing but hardship along the way. Well, could it be if you need to start seeing your hardship as a preparation for another level? You need to stop seeing this as torture. You need to stop seeing this in the way that you're seeing it. And you need to see it as the, in another way. He was anointed and had a prophecy given over him. Can you imagine? The prophet of God came, and he actually used the small horn. The, the language is with Saul, he had a big horn. Saul, the anointed of Israel. With David, he had a little tiny horn. It doesn't matter the horn that the guy puts on you. It matters the horn that God puts on you. It didn't matter. Saul's like, well, I guess, here you go. Or same as like here, you know. He's on his knees, anointing oils pulled over his head, and a prophet of God stands in front of him and said, you will be king of Israel, and walks away. David didn't look like a king. Didn't, there was nothing special, but this is you. This is you. I don't look like that. It doesn't matter what you look like. This is what he's calling you to. It took 15 years, almost 15 years for it to come to pass. He was 16. He was 30 when he took the throne. God shaped him along the way. Could it be that your hardships are preparation for the next level? Could that be? Say this with me. My hardships, in Jesus' name, are preparation for my next level. My past failures have no bearing on my future successes. My best days are yet to come, in Jesus' name. I look at my future, give me one more. I look at my future with glistening hope. Every area of my life, where there is not hope, is influenced by a lie. Holy Spirit, root out the lies and bring hope into the areas that are dominated by lies. You believe that? It's true. Right. We are going to take communion. <laughs> All this in communion too. Yeah. The word compassion means to suffer with. And what Jesus did for us is no small thing. Did you know that? It's no small thing. 
He gave away the one thing that he never lost, and he gave away his life. He had always held life. Life had never been foreign to him. And he went unto death. He gave life away. Nowhere at any time had God, never been, had God ever been without life, yet he gave that up for you. No small thing. It's related to the Jewish Passover. The bread was the afikomen. The blood was the cup of redemption. Jesus celebrated it in sequence to the Passover. In the Passover Seder, if you, ever knew, you guys are familiar with it, there's three matzahs in the beginning of the, of the feast. It's a feast. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a performance art with a food. And so they have three matzahs, one, two, three, unleavened bread. They take the middle matzah, not the first matzah, not the third matzah, the middle matzah, father, son, and spirit. They take the middle matzah, break it in half, take this half, wrap it in linen, and send it away. It's called the afikomen. So they wrap the afikomen and send it away. And then at the end of the feast, they bring out the afikomen, unwrap it from linen. Get it? The one who was broken, died, went away, now is coming back. That's the, mission. That's the message right there in the Jewish Seder that they are to perform year in and year out and year in and year out, but they're so blinded by religion they can't see it. Right in front of them. For centuries it is there, and yet they can't and they won't see it. The bread that was striped and pierced, broken, sent away, and returning. So if you can imagine you being a Jewish boy and your entire life you've celebrated the Passover, and Jesus brings out the bread, the afikomen, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. They, they would have been like, just shocked silence. Like, you're the afikomen? Yes, I'm the afikomen. I am the one who came, was broken, sent away, and I'm, going, I'm coming back. Can you imagine that? I mean, if, you, if you're a Peter, like your whole life you've been doing this, you'd be like, I mean, speechless. Then there's four cups of wine. This is what this represents. This isn't something that Christians made up. This is all related to the roots of Judaism from which our faith springs. And there were four cups of wine in the Jewish Passover. There was, and the, the third cup was called the cup of redemption, and the last cup was called I take you to myself. So there's three cups, cup of salvation, cup of redemption, cup of taking out, the cup of redemption, and then the cup of I take you to myself, or I call you my own, or I bring you to my bosom. That's another way of seeing it. And the third cup is the cup of redemption. And when Jesus got to the third cup of redemption, that's when the afikomen came out, and that's the cup he lifted. And then he takes the last cup, the fourth cup, and he says, we're not going to drink this until we drink it anew in the kingdom. So in, the, in, the, in that Passover, instead of doing four cups, Jesus did three because there's one cup that's yet to be drank. Did you know that? Jesus got a bottle of Chardonnay waiting for you. He's got a bottle of Pinot, Pinot Noir, whatever, the best you've ever seen, the new wine of the kingdom. And Jesus says, I got one more cup that I'm going to drink with you, and I'm going to drink it in my kingdom with you. And that was that whole, that was that whole table. I've... I've my body, my blood, and I'm going to come for you and take you to my bosom, and I'm going to drink this cup with you. The cup meaning fulfillment. I'm going to fulfill the fact that I'm taking you to myself, because right now I'm fulfilling the afikomen, and I'm fulfilling the cup of redemption. And when I take you to myself, I will fulfill the cup of take you to my bosom, or take you to my heart. Is that crazy? Yeah. So there's a lot of meaning behind this. So I'm going to pray, and what we're going to do is just quietly, when you go up, we're just going to go up and grab it, and just bring it back. But let me just pray real quick, and then we guys can go, okay? All right. Father, we just thank you so much for this day, Lord. We honor you. We remember you. I bless this time with your people. God, I just thank you for pure hearts, pure minds, pure understanding of who you are, what you are, and what you've done for us. We bless you, and we honor, and bless this time in this communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you guys